Welcome to the EIS Navigator. I'm your normal host, Brian Moretta. But today, I have the tables turned on me. I wrote a paper recently for Harmon & Co on venture capital asset allocation, which gave some interesting results. So we get a guest host in to quiz me about it, discussing the surprising results, hint, you're probably on the way, and some consequences for the rest of the asset mix. We also talk about some common misconceptions that this paper dispels. I'd like to thank Syndicate Room, 149 Wealth, Nova Gross Capital, and Deepbridge Capital for sponsoring the paper, and Andrew Aldridge for stepping in as host. If you're enjoying the podcast, don't forget you can subscribe on all good podcast services, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you have any suggestions for future topics or guests, then you can email us at inquiries.harmonco.com. Without any further ado, enjoy this episode. Hi, and welcome to the latest EIS Navigator podcast. My name is Andrew Aldridge. I'm partner and head of marketing at Deepbridge Capital. I am stepping in as host today as we are slightly turned uh, poacher turned gamekeeper as uh, our regular host, Dr. Brian Moretta, is our guest today. So Dr. Brian Moretta, who's head of tax and enhanced services at Harbin & Co., Brian, welcome to your own podcast. Thank you very much. It's very nice to be here, if a bit strange being on the other side of the microphone. <laughs> I will. I'll try and be kind to you, Brian. But uh, yeah, you're the usual one grilling us as, as managers. So uh, so maybe I'll get my own back slightly today. But uh, yeah, good. Um, so the theme for today is we are looking at your new white paper that you've uh, you've just released, which is about uh, or the title is how much should clients invest in venture capital. Um, so some really interesting insights in here into the venture capital world, uh, EISs, VCTs, etc., and how advisors should be working with clients or could be working with clients to uh, potentially increase uh, outcomes um, by utilising such uh, such portfolios and what have you. So, Brian, could you just start by just giving us a bit of an overview about the paper to start with, just a, a brief summary? Sure. So this kind of arose from some work I did a, little, a while ago where when, when I started looking at uh, sort of EIS funds and VCTs and all these sort of things, I did a lot of reading about it, so regular listeners of podcasts will know that I always ask about books at the end because I read a lot, and I do actually read recommendations, so thanks to everybody. Um, <laughs> so I started reading a lot, and one of the things I realised was that actually there's no kind of dummy's guide to investing in EIS and VCTs. So I started to do down a few notes and they kind of turn into, oh, suddenly I'm writing a book in essence, which, uh, so there's a manuscript that kind of got stored last year. But in writing that, I came across several questions. And one of the questions to my mind was, how much money should people be putting in venture capital? Because chatting around the market, there's this kind of rule of thumb, oh yeah, you stick 10% in. And yeah, that, that's about it. And no one said why 10% other than it is a round number. It didn't seem too much. There, there didn't seem to be anything really substantial behind why that case. And knowing what I know about risk management and whatever, I know one size doesn't fit all. So 10% can't be, it might be right for somebody, but it can't be right for everybody. So I did a little bit of work. And, you know, the result is the sort of stuff that you're going to see the white paper. So I've, I've been sitting on this for a few years. I was showing it to one, people, one or two people. Actually, I showed it to Andrew, who's hosting. And so I'm going to thank him for the idea of the white paper, because I showed it to you and you came back and said, well, why don't you stick it to this white paper? Um, Absolutely. And you know, part of that is because we thought this is what people want to know. This will give a framework 
that is substantial in terms of asset allocation and also moves us away from tax. And I think that's the other thing. I think that's absolutely a key point. I think you know, we are still in a world where EIS and VCTs and, and venture capital are talked about purely from a tax perspective um, by advisors um, and what have you. And, and there's there's nothing wrong with that. That can often be, we would call that a trigger point as to why people might consider such investments in the first place. But kind of VC, venture capital as an asset class, kind of uh, when we start talking about it away from the tax elements and actually start looking at it as an asset class, are there any kind of key trends or metrics or anything or a key profile things about it as an asset class that that people should be aware of? So I think understanding the venture capital is a distinct asset class is probably the starting point. I think there's still some people who look at it and say it's the same as equities, but just smaller companies or same smaller companies equities, but they're unquoted. And that's not the case. These are companies with distinct profiles. So if you think what a venture capital company's doing, it's going from finding that minimum valuable pr- product. It's, it's finding that first customer. It's mm-hmm. setting up, finding that product market fit. These are the things that determine the progress of venture capital company. And these are hard regardless of the state of the economy. If you think about the quoted companies or the quote market as a whole, not necessarily any individual company. These are much more economic dependent. If the economy is doing well, companies in the stock market as a whole generally do well. If we're in a recession, as a whole, they generally do badly. Now, I know there's exceptions in there. You know, not everything's truly cyclical. But in broad terms, so you know, we're talking about asset classes here. So that means that venture capital companies behave operationally in a distinct cycle from what happens to large companies and sometimes economic cycles can work funny ways because we've all seen in the pandemic about how it's actually been very good for a lot of digital companies because it's brought on a lot of adoption. At the same time, if you're a startup travel company, you've been trashed. Uh, and all right, some are coming going back now, thank goodness, but it was not good to be in those. At the same time, it's not entirely separated from quote companies because a lot of venture capital well, we all think, think about the IPOs and they get the big headlines. In reality, 90% go to trades, trade sales. And the value of the trade sale depends on how well the buyer is doing. And often the buyer is either a quote company or it's another large company that's got that economic dependence. So they're not completely separate, but at the same time, there's a lot of separation. So when you look at the academic research, and there is a bit of academic research, the correlation comes out as just under 0.5 between venture capital returns and quote equity returns. Now, to put it in the context, the correlation between equity and bonds is lower. Um, it's, you know, the, the data, comparable data suggests about just under 0.4. Um, so, so bonds are a better diversifier than uh, venture capital, but venture capital is still a decent diversifier. And that's, and that's really the heart of an asset class. And I think, I guess, I guess timing-wise to be looking at this as well, it's, um, you know, when I studied economics back at university far too long ago, we, we talked about how um, the, the cycle of an economy through bull and bear markets, etc. But ultimately, you know, recessions are a natural part of what you do. And ultimately, it is then the earlier stage, the smaller companies, which tend to be the backbone of economic recovery. Is, is that something that you, you'd probably agree with in terms of, of why VC is, is, is an interesting asset class? I think there's an element of truth. So, yeah, Smaller companies, in terms of stock market performance, tend to do well coming out of recession, partially because their balance sheets tend to be more fragile. So 
you can imagine if that you know, part of the part of the value of a company is effectively an option on it going bust. So in times of recession, you know the, the likelihood of it going bust is is higher, and it's at, so the value option is more sensitive in a smaller company than a larger company. Uh, that's kind of a basic economic theory thing. In venture capital companies, it's not quite the same mechanism. I think venture capital certainly has a cycle. The exit cycle is there. Some of the academic research I found suggested that venture capital returns lag equity returns by about five or six quarters on average. That does vary. So there is, again, it's a connection, but it's not a perfect linkage. uh, Far from it. Okay. Um, So just going back to the paper specifically, um, within the in the paper, you use uh, modern portfolio theory. Can you just tell us a little bit more about that kind of uh, you know layman's terms for some of the uh, for, for for some of us listening? Okay, ah, back to my lecturing days. <laughs> well, I wouldn't like to. So, modern portfolio theory was created in the 1950s by a guy called Markovitz, Harry Markovitz, who certainly won a Nobel Prize for this, and. It's the basic idea of portfolio optimization. And the idea is you, you, you take different asset classes, you say, what's my expected return? What's the risk that I have to get that return? What's the correlation between these? And you mix them all up in what's called mean variance optimization. And you say, okay, which mix of assets gives me, say, the best return for a given level of risk? So if I set, you know, they use a standard deviation as the measure of risk. So if I set my standard deviation, I want my portfolio standard deviation to be 12%, I can mix up all my assets and mathematically say which one, which mix of assets give me the best expected return. And obviously that's an expected return. It's not necessarily the actual return because we, we all know about volatility. So yep. that's, that's the kind of theory. And kind of what's so when you're looking at this from 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 this paper's perspective, what assumptions and things did you have to overlay on top of that in order to get your kind of paper as it as it is? So I, th- I think everyone's got their own ideas on what equities and bonds give for returns, and I use sort of assumptions of the paper that I don't think anyone will argue about. So I, I use two percent for bonds and seven percent for equities. These are annual returns. For venture capital, obviously, we have to try and figure these out a little bit. Now, looking at SEIS, EIS, and VCDs in particular, there isn't a data set. (laughs) So I had to look a little bit around to find what studies have been done. And the good thing is there's there's quite a few studies that cover this area in broad terms. They don't cover it perfectly. You know, every study you can look at it and nitpick and say, okay, this bit of methodologies, you know, maybe maybe I, I might question how effective it is. But broadly speaking, you've got half a dozen studies out there that suggest returns in the 20s percent. So I, there's one that's high 28%. There's another one that's 22%. That's the Siding with Angels report. So returns in the 20s seem to be reasonable. There's some US data that's got low returns, sort of high teens. Um, that's different for a couple of reasons. One is that's after fees. They're looking at GPLP stuff. And the second is it's much larger companies. So one of the key things, I think, in my mind is that venture capital has stages. And I think most people listening will know that. So the idea of seeds early stage, you've got scale up. Obviously, in America, the returns are going to be dominated by, and even if you did venture capital in the UK, returns are going to be dominated by the big companies. So the last round in Facebook or the last round in Amazon or Tesla pre 
float would be a venture capital round. And these would be huge rounds compared to seed, what's going in the seed. So the returns for these dominate. So you would expect the returns from these later stages where the risk has been reduced to be a bit lower. So the way I got to was saying, okay, 20, 20 something percent seems to be uh, the targets or the reasonable expectation for venture capital as a whole. Let's be conservative. So use two sections. As I, I said, okay, if you've got seed capital, which is kind of the earliest stage, 22%, because that was the deciding with angels figure. And then for scale up, I assume 15% a year, because that kind of tallied with the US data. I'm pretty sure those are conservative figures. But then also, you know, there's implicit allowance, I guess, for you know, fees and expenses and stuff as well. Fair enough. No, I think uh, no, I think the, the assumptions as far as when you know, reading through the white paper myself all seem to make sense and uh, and absolutely uh, kind of in line with with I guess with it, um, with expectations on that conservative nature as you said. So I guess the, the the all important bit now then is is kind of what were the results, what were your findings, and uh, and guess kind of yeah, what what's your interpretation of that? What what are the the, the implications of that? So. At the risk of talking about numbers and graphs when we're audio only, I, I, I was stunned by the results first time I did this. I was actually off double-checking and things uh, that I hadn't got anything wrong. But the results are that for your average investor, you're looking at you know scale-up capital asset allocations that are somewhere in the, the mid-teens, and that will enhance your returns by probably being about a half and 1%. So even if you add, so interestingly, if, if you put seed or scale up in, you get the same sort of net effect and returns. So if you're a 64 investor, which is one I reference in the port report, you can add about half a cent returns without changing your risk profile. And I think that's really key about not changing the risk profile. If you're up to an 80-20 investor, then you're adding more like, you know, something over 1%. So I think yeah, I think the key thing you mentioned there is about risk. I mean, obviously that is we speak regularly with with advisors who will say, oh, we don't we don't touch venture capital, or yeah, you know, they'd say we don't touch EIS or VCTs. It's just too high risk for our investors. Period, and then that's kind of the end of the conversation. Yeah, you know, I think you know they they've always all seen the presentations and things that you know if you were looking at a standard risk profiling tool for financial advice, then uh, yeah, if you're on a scale of one to ten, you know EIS and VCTs are probably at least eleven or a twelve in terms of those that kind of context. Your report obviously talks about how this isn't just about for the mega wealthy or the high net worth. This is for somebody with. A reasonable portfolio themselves, um, you know, that they, they should be able to do this all within their existing risk profile by tweaking, etc. Can you just explain kind of what that tweaking looks like away from the 60-40 and kind of, again, maybe some of the assumptions you used around that? Yeah, so this is one of my pet hates. I've, I've heard advisors say the same thing. And I think there's some tools out there that advisors use that are not really dealing with these things properly. So I didn't make any extra assumptions. So I, I've told you my assumptions. Everything else that now I now talk about follows from the assumptions I've made. There's no additional assumptions from here on. So the net results is that even if you're a low-risk investor, you know, so, so I'm going to talk about default portfolios in terms of equity bond balance because that's kind of the way I talk about in the report. Uh, and maybe some advisor could get in touch with me about mapping these to risk profiles or something at some point. But if you're a 30% equity investor, so that's 30% equity, 70% bonds, 
you can still get an uplift to your return from putting a little bit of venture capital in. The important point here is you're not betting the shop. You know, you, at that sort of level, you're talking about maybe adding 5% of venture capital, but you can still improve the return for the, the investor and generally without, without changing the risk. The key, and, and I think the, the, the big insight that this report gives is that if you are introducing venture capital, you have to take a holistic approach to asset allocation. You've got to rebalance the other assets. And in the optimal portfolios, generally what happens is the equity portfolio equity proportion drops substantially by significantly more than the amount of venture capital adding, and the amount of bonds goes up. Yeah. And that kind of makes intuitive sense when we think about it. If you think you've got a portfolio of whatever equity bond proportion, you want to keep the risk constant. You add a riskier asset. You have to take risk out of the other assets to do that. And the way, yeah, you know, and bonds are the least risky asset here. Equities are the, the riskier, you know, pre that. So you reduce the equities. Venture capital is more risk than equities. So you've got to take more risk by taking more equities out than, you, than the venture capital you've added. So that's kind of the intuition. No, absolutely. I think that was when, uh, again, when you and I had that coffee, and you first mentioned that what you were what you were thinking, and yeah, uh, you know, yeah, you know, right or wrong, I encourage you to write the paper. That was the key thing that I took away from it. Was again when we when we talk to advisors um, who basically have a computer says no approach to uh, venture capital, and like I said, the ISVCTs, etc. It tends to be because they're always looking at it in isolation rather than looking at it as part of the portfolio. And exactly as you said, I think the key thing there is to make sure the, po- the overall portfolio risk that someone is holding is appropriate, not just on a single investment case. Otherwise, they're going to end up with some very generic and very kind of dull portfolios. And actually, yeah, it's not going to be diversified. They're not going to have exposure to other things. So uh, I think you're absolutely right. And that was the key thing that that kind of uh, that, that took took my uh, got my attention, shall we say. Yeah. And I think there's a sort of floor in the market out there a little bit when people sort of look at these things and as you say you, you take decisions in isolation and, and it's and it's tempting because as investors we all do that ourselves I, I even i've done it myself where it's like okay i've got this little bit of cash what am i going to invest it in and i'm thinking what am i doing with this cash not how does it affect the rest of my portfolio absolutely Absolutely. And again, those kind of things just though just reinforce the importance of good financial advice. Um, you know, I think that's one of the key things is that uh, you know, financial advice is important because you, know, you could change one bit in your portfolio and it could have tax implications or implications to your wider portfolio that uh, were potentially unintended consequences. But uh, so historically, or kind of um, when people have or advisors or the likes of ourselves have talked about where EIS fits in into the advisor journey, if you like, with a client. You know, we kind of often talks about, you know, pensions, then ISAs, then EIS almost being kind of the third pillar of uh, of tax planning for, you know, with investments and what have you. Reading this report, it kind of seems to me that uh, actually you're not saying that at all. It shouldn't be in that kind of chronological order, if you like. It should be that VC is, is forming part of this kind of almost from day one. Is, is that is that correct? That is very correct. And again, this is something I call it the pension fallacy in the report, which I've said that I've used that phrase to a couple of people or sort of kind of road testing ideas. And they and immediately a lot of people on our side, sort of the, you know, um, the people who, who study this market understand exactly what I mean. And yeah, you've got this idea that's kind of almost product led where it's okay. You've got somebody who will sort out their pensions. You'll sort out their ISA. Oh, we used up the pension. What's the next tax relief? And that in a way is good a sales story. 
And I can understand why a lot of providers in the market actually use that as a sales strategy because it resonates with a lot of advisors. But it's doing clients and investors a disservice. The initial analysis I do says nothing about tax relief, nothing about products. It's about asset allocation. And if you want access to venture capital, getting it through your pension is really hard. There's no funds, no open-end funders that do it. There's a couple of listed companies. Well, three, actually, two of which are trading premiums to their asset value just now. You can't get through a pension fund. You can do some direct investments. So one of the platforms recently has done sort of allowed you to sort of co-invest along beside big GPLP funds. But effectively, they're like ES funds without the tax relief, possibly for later stage. So VCTs, EIS, SEIS, they're kind of the main way of doing it. You have funds, and obviously, if you want to do angel investing or, or crowdfunding, those also use those reliefs as well. But that's kind of, for the average retail investor, that's your options about accessing venture capital. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, you make a great point there that EIS, SCIS, VCTs are the routes to venture capital for, for most uh, most investors. And it's we work um, internationally, we yeah, we've got uh, yeah, we've looked at companies from across the world. We've spoken to advisors, investors from across the globe, etc. And when you talk to people from overseas about EIS, SEIS, VCTs, they're kind of blown away. And you know, their their first thought is, well, if you're an IFA or a, or an investor, why the hell wouldn't you be using such tax relief? So it's um, this kind of almost follows that on is almost kind of shining a light. Well, actually, you know, the enhanced returns you can get by using those tax reliefs and considering the tax reliefs into your workings as you have done is uh, is kind of almost a no-brainer if you put it like that but uh, um so it's kind of on that point you've well before some... we do that i realized i didn't finish yeah. my thought on pensions oh sorry sorry <laughs> yeah uh sorry <laughs> i'm gonna take over if i'm not careful so yeah some pensions i think the, the key thing is that we're saying that if you add venture capital portfolio you're enhanced returns now that's for the life cycle so if you if, if you can imagine you say to somebody, okay, you're going to spend the next 15 years or 20 years filling up your pension fund, and then we'll stick you in venture capital to get the right... Uh, then, then you've got 10 or 15 years or 20 years where you're getting a worse return than if you'd added a little bit of venture capital. Advisors or investors want to get the best return for the same level of risk. When they're starting saving for the pension, they start investing for venture capital alongside of that. And... I think I emphasize the problem. I'm not suggesting you replace pension with venture capital, but you know, and then you still would probably put 80% of your money or whatever into pension funds, but you would put that 10 or 15 or 18% into venture capital alongside that to build a portfolio. And I think even more importantly, when you're younger, you probably have a higher risk tolerance or risk appetite. So you probably could take a bit more and get more risk, and then you'll get the return and make it a bit more conservative as you get older. No, absolutely. That's an extremely valid point. I think uh, you know a lot of people uh, will agree that kind of the the, the younger that the clients, the the higher their uh, risk uh, profile, because ultimately they've got a longer time to, to make the money back mm-hmm. if they need to, if, if all else failed. Yeah, we're talking about uh, the tax reliefs. Um, so you know, in the report, you talk about the um, not only venture capital, but then also about the tax reliefs and how they can enhance uh, returns further. Can you just briefly touch on that and the findings there and the kind of that impact? Yeah, so obviously we've got these tax reliefs that are really very generous. And I think the way that they're described, they're really easy to work out the effects of on your return and capital. 
not so easy to work out the effect on sort of your IRR or expected rate of return, which is a little bit non-intuitive for people to work with. I, mean, I think a lot of people, people industry work with return on capital, just, although it's flawed because it doesn't take account of timescales, it's very easily understood. So I was so if I want to do this sort of optimization process, I need to get an IRR. So I mm-hmm. took the siding with Angel's report data, used that as kind of a model set of returns to give a return distribution, and said, if then I overlay my tax release on that, what effect does that have my IRRs? And frankly, the results are pretty dramatic. Uh, and again, this was something that really surprised me. So if you take, say, the basic EIS release, so so the scenario I set up with deciding with Angel stuff says gave an IR of 17%. So in the report, they say it's at 22, but I just assumed certain timescales, which obviously don't match uh, what the underlying data is, but it, it separates things out nicely. If you add it, the basic income, EIS income tax relief, that takes it up to 24%. If you add loss relief on that, that adds another three percentage points, you get up to 27%. It, it just dramatically increases these things. So, and that's assuming you get the EIS relief a year, the basic income tax relief a year after. You know, if you get the income tax relief after six months, that's even better. SEIS just gets ridiculous. I mean, you're almost doubling the return, which, think about it, makes sense because you're actually getting half your money back almost at the outset. So, yeah, it's almost doubled your IRRs. In in terms of, obviously, you mentioned there about loss relief, um, et cetera. How did you build in, obviously, you built in the, the kind of the, the IRR or the, the, the target returns of, of you know, 22%, um, as you, you mentioned, what? How does that work in terms of portfolio construction, number of failures you'd be expecting, or kind of percentage-wise things like that? Is is that a, is that something that's that's gone into those assumptions? Earlier? Yeah. So if you if you look at the report, you see the detailed assumptions, but the data from the, the report suggested forty-one percent of companies fail completely. You've got another sort of fifteen percent or so that lose money. So it's not being aggressive here. It's saying on half the investment you lose money. And then you've got a chunk on which you get much bigger returns. So you've got a couple of percent that get more than 30 times. So I haven't stuck with this rigorously, but I, I kind of based it on that outline scenario. So obviously you've got half the companies you're getting some loss relief on because you're getting some money back from that. And obviously you're not paying CGT at the end, which is another little perk that can make a difference. Indeed. And also, I guess, you know, I think it's uh, an old adage saying that we talk to our investors about is that you are likely to see failures before you see successes in a, in a VC portfolio. Um, companies tend to fail quicker than they succeed. So uh, I guess that's kind of all, all kind of factored in. In terms of kind of looking at this uh, overarchingly, you know, kind of looking at these numbers, looking at the, the feedback from this, kind of what are the kind of the consequences of this report from your mind or what would you hope that readers, whether they're financial advisors or investors, would, would take away from the report as a, a key consideration or a next step? So I, th- I think conceptually, I'm quite ambitious with this report in, in one sense, in that we have an industry that is still suffering, and I use the word suffering deliberately, from tax. And having just sat there and extolled all the virtues of these tax breaks, that's going to sound ironic. But it's led to, I think it's almost created as many problems as it's solved in terms of marketing because 
people look at tax breaks, A, there's an element of these are too good to be true. I think we've seen a lot of people who've been burnt by sort of slightly dodgy tax schemes in the past attempts. Um, we've all seen the headlines or, or various things in the past. And and people naturally are, are sort of a little bit worried about this. But, you know, and, and the phrase that everyone in the industry uses about the tax tail and the investment dog and, you know, whatever. And, and yeah, you know, we're all worried about, you know, doing things for tax reasons. Yet somehow we always keep going back to tax as the story. And I think one of the reasons we do that is people haven't had a framework. So people, you know, there's this rule of thumb, oh, yeah, you stick 10%. But people had a framework to say, well, actually, what should I be doing? And to my mind, this gives a framework. So this isn't primarily aimed at advisors, but it all helps investors. But I think for an advisor, this is the reason why you're recommending things to your, your clients or, your, or to investors. It's not the story you tell your clients. The stories you tell your clients are, okay, you've got the tax release, you've got, you invest in lots of gross companies, it's exciting, you know, blah, 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 blah. You know, that, 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 you know, that's the stories. And Stephen Jones, on, a, on a, an episode in the summer, talked about this whole very well, and I think I think articulate that. From advisors, or, or even, you know, even if you're just a sophisticated investor, this is the sort of thing you should be sitting there saying, on the reasons recommended, firstly, they're underweight venture capital. That's kind of uh, what you should be doing. I think the other consequence is looking at these things holistically. So you sort of said about that, you know, you made you made the point about changing the application and, and get, keeping your risk profile the same and adjusting the other assets. I think that is the deep thought. You know, I, I suspect there's a lot of people had this idea, probably the characters of venture capital, you know, oh yeah, it's not quite the same as equity, blah, blah. A lot of people, I think, sort of knew this in their heart, even in their head. But what you do with the rest of the assets is something people probably haven't had to work through. So actually saying, here's here's a framework and thinking about what you do with the other assets gives an easy way. And the point is, you know, this is quite an easy way of saying, here's a way I can improve my client outcomes or improve investors improving your own investment outcomes without changing my risk profile. <sighs> Yeah, and again, I think, I guess, the, these conversations then with the client as well, you know, none of us ever want to sit in front of a client and uh, and say, what I've advised you on previously was wrong, we're going to have a change of tact. It's about absorbing it and moving it forward and actually finding solutions for the next, for the future, rather than considering, let's say, what you've done previously. And, uh, but uh, keeping it within that framework of their risk profile, keeping within that framework of, of what appeals to them, uh, but adding in new things and new ideas all the time, I guess. I guess that's uh, yeah, kind of an evolving industry as well for a lot of advisors who maybe aren't so used to these products previously. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you've spoken to a lot more advisors than I do, and I think I I speak mostly to pretty sophisticated advisors. I I get the guys who are quite technically interested who mm-hmm. spend a lot of time in this market coming to me. So that a lot of people I speak to already know a lot about this. You speak to probably the people who don't spend a lot of time on this. I, I mean, we, we, we tend to call them less sophisticated. They're not less sophisticated. They're just maybe less experienced or less used to this area. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, we've, yeah, for example, we've, um, over the last 18 months, we've run a number of um, educational webinar series for advisors. Um, and the first ones uh, we launched were, we literally called EIS The Basics, because we think there's still a huge swathe of advisors in the market who 
understand where venture capital, EIS, VCTs fit in from a tax planning perspective and from a portfolio uh, perspective, but maybe haven't had the confidence or the experience to kind of talk about it kind of as, as proactively as they'd like. Uh, and the feedback we've had from such sessions has been fantastic of people going, okay, great, I, I can probably dip my toe in the water now. I can I can try this. I can you know, start with a couple of my, uh, my bigger clients, my more high net worth clients, et cetera. But I think the key thing that uh, I think think your your report kind of really kind of sums up is saying that you know I guess a lot of us in in the industry have have thought for a long time is that you know EIS VCTs are not just for the mega wealthy you know you don't need to be mega wealthy to actually see the benefits of such products with within your portfolio yes you've got to consider liquidity and, and things like that and you know if you are a a, a less high net worth investor, should we say, then you possibly maybe not have the uh, the, the appetite to have illiquid stocks held because you might need the access to cash at some point. Yeah, yeah. But, um, I, I, I do highlight these things in the report. Just to- absolutely, absolutely, and I think that's and I think that's the, the key thing is is and and, and uh, but once you get through that, I think you know it is advisors are. We're certainly seeing more appetite for these kind of products in the market. Uh, I think people are more and more seeing that there is a valuable place for them. And uh, is that something that you're seeing as well from across the market? You you kind of have a, a wider overarching view of the market than, than we do as a provider. I think I see things more at the aggregate level in terms of sort of sales and things. And it's difficult to judge because the last two years with the pandemic have been so distorted. Everything's still tax year related a little bit. And, and I can understand it because I know even personally, you know, I don't know until January how much you know, I'm going to earn in a year. So I don't know how much I have to invest. And still people get city bonuses, whatever. So th- there's always going to be that little bit of tax year dependence, uh, whether we like it or not. But um, so, so we lost March to some extent last year. We lost the f- second quarter f- of, the, of the calendar year. People were being care cautious, thoroughly understandably. And now we, we, we were talking about before we, we we recorded about VCTs and we're seeing a surge of money going into VCTs. And I don't know to what extent that is people accepting the, 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 risk, the extra risk of vector capital. Yeah, I suspect there is something of a secular trend there. People have been sitting on their hands and now they've got a bit more money saved than they otherwise would have. So now yeah. they're saying, so we're seeing that extra money coming back into into risk assets. Or, or at the same time, people are sort of saying, well, interest rates at, you know, whatever they are, you know, half a percent, if you're lucky on your savings account, I'm tired of this and I don't see it getting any better in the near future. Inflation is going up. The Bank of England's not moving base rates. I, I'm just willing to take a bit more risk. And I suspect there's a little bits of all of those going on in there. So... I'd like to think that investor advisors are getting more used to this. You know, one of the things that frustrates me about this industry, I mean, I, know, I, I thoroughly understand you running beginners, website, beginners webinars, is that I've been involved in this industry for six, seven years now, and it still feels like we're, we're still doing the basics and, and growing the market. And we've never, as an industry, moved beyond that to get the proper conversations, which I think the white paper could be part of. Uh, absolutely, you're absolutely right. I think, um, yeah, again, I've been in the industry uh, eight years, so yeah, sim- similar, similar to yourself, Brian, and uh, you know, some, some of the same conversations being had now that we had eight years ago. I think on the whole, it is 
at least now we you know we we haven't got an industry cluttered with things which aren't kind of what we would class as being in the spirit of EIS. You know, uh-huh. everything is now growth focused capital and patient capital, and is kind of almost going back to what EIS was originally intended for. So you know, the, the market is less clouded now, and I think that in its way helps advisors have a bit more clarity about what they're actually investing in. Whereas uh-huh. I think yeah, we had a first a few years when I was first in the industry where you know yeah, for example, a growth tech fund was one thing, but then if you invest in crematoria or, or things on the other side in EIS and how could you have a joined up conversation about what's what and what EIS really look like whereas now everyone is in the in the growth boat and uh, hopefully makes it much clearer prospect for uh, for advisors and clients as they as they kind of go forward um, so, so we've extolled the virtues of the EIS and VCT industry Brian you know, far from perfect I'm sure but uh, you know what kind of um, what would you change about the EIS VCT market uh, if, uh, if if you could so, oh, there's so many things, and I, I, I hate to say it, having had done 40 podcast episodes, I've got way more ideas than people got way Absolutely, out about things. I can imagine. I think I see two or three things. We've already mentioned a couple. So one is actually this topic about risk and how it fits in a portfolio. That, that has been one of my pet bugbears. And we've spoken about how the industry has not yet moved on from basic education, and I look forward to that. I think as an analyst... I think the industry could do more about transparency. We're seeing progress on fees in particular, but I I, I think transparency would help a lot. And, you know, some of this, actually the back of mind business relief, which isn't really quite the, the topic of what we're talking about as well. But I think if we could make a little bit more progress towards transparency, that would give people more confidence and I know it's hard, but I think it's something that has to be done because people are still worried about hidden fees and disclosure and not knowing what you're investing in. And I think there's a bit about admin in there as well, where the, there's a lot of paperwork for this. It is getting better. I see it getting better, and I'm, I'm glad to see there's progress that, but there's still more to go on that. And I think just making the admin around investing this easier would yep. help. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think there's um, there's a lot of entities making great strides in that in that state in that kind of area. And uh, yeah, comments about transparency, I think that's uh, across the board. You know, ultimately, investors should know at least the types of companies they're investing in. There should should no longer be kind of just a black box approach of put your money in and at some point you'll uh, you'll get some returns. Hopefully, you should know the kinds of companies you're investing in. Um, you should know exactly what the fees are. You know what a company's charging the investee company as well as what they charge the investor. Um, you know what everything's going on behind the scenes. So I think you know, you're absolutely spot on there. I think yeah, we are in a better place than we've ever been before as an industry. Um, but there's always room for improvement. Probably not just in EISVCTs, probably across financial services as a whole, to be honest, but uh, that's uh, for discussion another day, I guess. Yes, yeah. I, I'm reassured that the trends are in the right direction. Still more to go, but we're going the right direction, I think. Absolutely. Um, so turning the tables on you as the uh, as the usual host, um, <laughs> I know it's your favourite question when you do these, but uh, can you uh, just tell us your suggestion of a book that uh, you'd recommend people read that uh, that you particularly like? So I'm going to do the thing I hate from my guests, and I'm going to suggest two. <laughs> I don't hate that, actually. It's just more yeah. for me to read. So I was thinking about this in advance, and I'm like, as someone who reads, at the moment, I'm reading about 50 or 60 books a year. So it was really hard. I've read a lot about venture capital and I thought, no, I'm not going to recommend anything particular in venture capital, partly because 
by the time you get to 20th or 25th book, they start to feel a little the same. So yeah, there's a couple outstanding, but what's right for someone depends so much. You know, if you're running a company, if you're, if you're investing, completely different suggestions. So I want to suggest two other books. One is a book I read earlier this year called The Choice by Edith Egger. And she is now a or retired psychotherapist, but she was a, ch- a child in Hungary just before the war. And she ended up in Auschwitz and she was on the death march uh, with her sister. And the two of them pulled through. And it's a story about, A, how she survived it. And secondly, about how she came to terms with it afterwards. And it is one of the most touching books I've ever read. And I think, you know, there's not many books I would recommend to anybody. That I would recommend that everybody should read that book. It's both inspirational mm-hmm. in terms of what people can survive. It's almost like a horror book in what pe- people can do to other people. And also touching on the sort of the mental health, understanding what pe- other people are going through and empathy for other people. I think it's something that's kind of missing from the world at the moment a little bit. So, you know, that is, you know, a, a top, top book. That is, uh, whilst, whilst you talked, I've written a note down. I'll be on Amazon later getting, uh, getting a copy of that. <laughs> and the second book you were going to recommend? The second book, something completely different, is a book called Trust Me, I'm Lying by Ryan Holiday. And it's, it's, it's a few years old now, but it probably seems present. It's a book that essentially describes how incentives in media are distorting what we're getting. So obviously we've got the big discussion about Facebook now. And in essence, what he's talking about is exactly the same thing, where basically the urge to monetize, clickbaiting, whatever, is basically not working. But he goes into... He, so he used to do, you know, the classic poacher term gamekeeper he used to do a lot of this and he sort of avails dc because and i think if people understood more about what why the media industry isn't working as well as it did we'd take a lot of news headlines with a little bit more skepticism and it might improve you know my fantasy is it improves public discourse forever but i have big dreams and (laughs) which um but this is a small step along that way no, interesting and uh, yeah, a very different topic from the first book, definitely. But uh, yeah, so go on then. Last question, which I know is a, another key question that you, that you often ask, mm-hmm. and uh, so I'm, I'm making sure this is included now. Um, you know, when you started looking at venture capital initially, what do you what do you wish you knew then when you first started? I think how much fun it is. I, the, 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 it sounds a bizarre thing to say. I've been surprised at how much I enjoyed starting this industry. When, when it was first suggested to me, Harmico, that we start getting into this, I was a little bit reluctant. You know, I, 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 my background, I'd been a fund manager for a decade. I'd worked in quote companies. I'd analysed quote companies. And I, I saw the unquoted market as kind of a sort of fly-by-night, shady, slightly dodgy, you know, private equities, just this dodgy thing uh, with its rape and pillage companies. But as I got into it, I realized actually, even even private equity, but venture capital is not nothing like any of that. It's really interesting. The companies are really interesting. The ecosystem is exciting. Most of the people working in the industry are really good people. And I really enjoy working with people. 
And I've, I've really enjoyed a lot of what I'm doing. I do this podcast because it's fun. I really enjoy sitting down with people, chatting for an hour about, or maybe I'm chatting with interesting people about interesting topics. And I, I just love doing this now, actually. But don't tell people if they, I'm still not paid. I think I would probably just add that I completely agree with that. I think the thing that I certainly love about being involved in the VC world is seeing the passion of advisors, of investors who maybe haven't been exposed to this world before when they see you know, one of the early stage companies they've backed, when you give them an update and say that they've got a contract with a big blue chip company or that they're now being utilized in NHS, et cetera. Uh, one of my favorite anecdotes was an advisor phoned me probably about four or five years ago. And one of our companies uh, had a device that was being used and, and being started to roll out across the NHS. And the client had gone to uh, A&E with uh, his son who'd had a footballing injury. He was fine, by the way. But uh, in A&E reception, there was a poster for the device um, that, uh, that they'd invested in so he took a selfie of it with uh, and sent it to his advisor really excited saying this is what we've invested in isn't it and that, that was that passion that you see from mm. people about getting getting their hands dirty seeing the whites of the eyes of these kind of early stage companies that are trying to be the next big tech or life sciences innovation um, and that passion is infectious and i think you know we do work in a in a very in a very closely knit uh, kind of uh, ecosystem and uh, that that passion should run through it and think uh, it's great to hear you even as an analyst gets excited about the industry if that's uh, that's great to hear yeah no i'm just thinking massey cushion talks about a very similar story about he was wandering around with i think was his nephew and there was something uh, a drink or something he'd seen that invested in he's like pointing out his nephew and even his nephew was like oh wow yeah exactly so, yeah. exactly and that's and that's 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 the beauty of what we do it is that that uh yeah and seeing um uh, again somebody uh had, had posted earlier today uh on linkedin uh one of the guys one of our investing companies who uh had posted about how when he first started out yeah when he was uh begging and borrowing paper and pens to get his company off the ground um and uh, as he was walking into the office this morning he just had one of those moments that hit him that you know he's got a team of 50 odd plus now working for him and things like that and uh you've just seen that journey of that organization through from uh, from that that initial seed idea through to to actually creating jobs, creating income, um, and uh, and ultimately that's what the EIS and VCTs are about. It's about creating jobs and creating uh, revenues into HMRC, and that's that's exactly what those organisations are doing. Um, Brian, thank you very much for your time today on your own podcast. Um, yeah, <laughs> that's my pleasure. You're obviously running out of guests. That's what it is. You haven't interviewed yourself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, thank you very much. Um, the uh, the report is extremely interesting. If anybody hasn't read it and uh, has listened to this, then please do go and get a copy of the report, which I assume you can download from Harman Co. So we download from harmanco.com. We'll post a link to the show notes. And what I'd also like to do is thank our sponsors, who are Deep Ridge Capital, Nova Growth Capital, 149 Wealth, and Syndicate Room, who really, they're the guys who sort of made this possible. So thanks to them. Uh, well, personally, we're, we're very delighted to support you. I think it's a very useful piece and uh, really shows the the impact of uh, venture capital into a portfolio. So, Brian, thank you for your time. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And, uh, yes, we look forward to seeing you again, or Brian looks forward to seeing you again on the next podcast. Yes, next week you'll, I won't talk anything like as much, I promise. So we hope you enjoyed that. If you want to find out more, the show notes will be available at hardmanco.com forward slash podcast. If you like, really like what you heard, you can give us a review with lots of stars on iTunes. You can subscribe to this through iTunes, Spotify, and all good podcast players. If you want to give us feedback or find out more about what we're doing, 
then you can send us an email at inquiries at hardmanandco.com. Thanks very much for listening and hope to hear from you soon.